Right, so here we are um, for part two of the fig tree assign for all time. And we're gonna have a really quick recap of part one. So basically there's three talks that are put together. Part one was all about the fruit and part two is all about the tree and part three is all about the future. And so what we're doing tonight is the part two one, which is all about the, the actual tree itself. So let me uh, just uh, click forward on this. So if you remember, um, what we said was part one, we went back to Genesis and we looked at, um, we looked at the fig tree in Genesis and we'll do a little recap on that in just a, in just a moment. Um, but tonight we look, we're considering the fig tree itself. And basically, I think what we said last time was that the tree of knowledge of good and evil itself was a fig tree. And I'll, I'll recap just very slightly in a second, just to um, remind you of what we said. And we pointed out that the the fig itself and what was going on with the fig was all to do with Jesus's sacrifice in symbolic terms. And what we're going to find out this evening is that the tree itself is all about Israel. So the, the fig is about the work of Jesus. The tree itself is all about Israel in symbolic terms. So just a couple of slides just to, to recap. So if you remember, we went back into uh, the Garden of Eden. We sort of went there because it's the first time that figs uh, are actually mentioned. And what we said was that God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And in the center of that garden, there were two trees. Uh, there was the tree of life and there was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And basically what we said was that the tree of knowledge of good and evil uh, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it was itself a fig tree, just as we have fig trees, it was just a communal garden fig tree that was right in the center of the garden. That was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And one of the reasons that we suggested that it is the fig tree itself is if you remember, when God said to Adam and Eve that they couldn't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, um, they decided to eat of it because the serpent uh, said to them, you know, you're not going to die. God has said that you'll die. You won't die. Um, and so they thought, well, OK, we're going to eat of eat of the fruit of it because it looked really good. Um, and actually, the serpent was right in one aspect that it was a tree that was going to make them wise. And really, it did. It opened their eyes to understand good and evil. The moment they ate of the fruit, their eyes were opened, it says. <clears throat> As you can see there on the screen, the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked. So this is the second after they've eaten of the fig. And then what they did, of course, was sewed fig leaves together. And what we said was that actually this is interesting because it doesn't say that they walked off and found a fig tree. The last tree that was mentioned was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the next sentence is they sewed fig leaves together. And we said, actually, this is quite a strange thing to do. Why would they wander around the garden looking for, you know, some other tree? 
surely if they were ashamed at that very instant, they would grab the nearest leaves that were next to them. And as we also said, the fig leaves themselves are very, very unpleasant to the touch. They're almost like sandpaper. They're not the first leaves that you would think about in terms of grabbing to cover yourself on your skin. They're very, very uh, coarse and um, sandpapery. But anyway, they somehow stitch these leaves, uh, leaves together. So there's almost um, an underlying clue, <clears throat> excuse me, that the uh, fig tree was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then what we did, we had a look at what was going on with the fig wasp and the remarkable um, circumstances of how a fig is pollinated. So I'll just play one of the little videos that I played last time, just to uh, remind you. Hopefully this works. And so the pollen-laden wasp reaches an immature fig, but her journey is far from over. Ahead lies the greatest challenge of her brief life. Clawing and squeezing her way through the gate, her wings and antenna are ripped from her. She makes the ultimate sacrifice as the final push to enter bursts her abdomen. In an epic struggle between sacrifice and survival, the mother wasp crawls through the narrow labyrinth towards the inner chamber. She is wounded and weak, carrying only her eggs and the pollen gift from the former fig. If the wasp fails to pollinate the flowers, no seeds will ever develop. Fig fruits with no future are costly to the tree, so they will not receive an inflow of nutrients. If the wasp does not pollinate, the entire fig may be aborted. However, if she devotes herself to pollination as well as laying eggs, she ensures the fig will hold the promise of seeds. The tree will pump sugars and nutrients into the fig, securing the future of seeds and larvae alike. When they mature and leave, the fig will ripen, thus completing the cycle of mutual benefit. So there we are. Um, if you remember, there was a few other videos. And when you put all the phrases together, what you get are these exact phrases. Uh, one of the videos said that a fig is like an enclosed garden because all the flowers uh, uniquely are inside the fruit itself. There's no other fruit tree uh, like it from that aspect. Um, there's only one way into the fig. It's a very narrow way in. It's so narrow, in fact, that the uh, little fig wasp that's only two millimeters long makes the ultimate sacrifice, if you notice that phrase, when the little um, uh, fig wasp gets into the hole, it tears off its wings and tears off its antennae. So there's no way out now. And in fact, when it goes through the hole, somehow rather the fig knows that it's gone in and closes up the hole behind the fig wasp. There's actually no way out for it. And so you heard the phrase that this fig wasp is, this fig wasp is wounded and weak. You heard the phrase that it's devoted to pollination. And it's all about the promise of seeds because this fig wasp is pollinating um, the flowers that are inside the fig itself. And you also heard that it says that the future of the fig is secured because of what this little fig wasp is doing. And when I first listened to all of that, it seemed to me to have so many links, of course, to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know he is the ultimate sacrifice. He was wounded and was weak. He was devoted to the cause. He did create the promise of future seeds and he did secure our future. So and all of that's taking place, of course, in this enclosed garden with just one 
very narrow way in. So uh, the last bit of, of recap was just me saying, well, look, if the fig was the forbidden fruit, then actually this is quite amazing because they both ate from it. But inside this fig is all the symbology for salvation. All the key elements of salvation are inside the very fruit that God said, don't eat. Jesus, as we know, is the one and only way to be saved. He said, I am the way, the truth and the life. We're told in numbers of different places in the Bible how Jesus was wounded and how he gave himself as a sacrifice. Uh, he was absolutely devoted. There was no, you know, um, there, was, there weren't two tracks for Jesus. There was one track and he was on that track. And just like the fig wasp hasn't got another life, it's purely on a mission to find the fig and to pollinate it. And Jesus, as we know, created a future seed. Uh, and he did it because of his sacrifice so that we uh, are all able now to uh, be part of the promises that God uh, has made. And Jesus has guaranteed all those who accept his sacrifice an amazing future life in the kingdom that's coming on this earth. And so what I was uh, stunned about really was the fact that God in the very test that he had given them had got the solution, the symbolic solution to their test embedded in the very fruit that he had told them not to eat. I mean, to me, that was just mind blowing. So that's the, the sort of little introduction. And we're now going to move on and we're not so much looking at the fig now, we're looking at the tree itself. So what does God say about the tree itself and how do we link it, um, it, how do we link the fig tree to Israel? Well, one of the things that we're told in Genesis chapter 2 verse 9 is that out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God put in the midst of the garden itself. And in Genesis 3 verse 3 it says, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So we're being told twice within just a couple of uh, verses that the tree was in the midst of the garden. Now, what is interesting about that, because I'm basically saying that the tree itself is symbolic of Israel as a nation. Well, let's just have a look at some uh, verses here in relation to what God says about Israel and Jerusalem, which is, of course, the capital of Israel. Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5 says, Thus saith the Lord God, this is Jerusalem, I have set it in the midst of the nations and countries that are round about her. It's exactly the same word, and God is describing almost everything, so all the nations are surrounding Jerusalem. God has put it in the midst. In Micah chapter 5, verse 7, it says the remnant of Jacob, which is another name for Israel, will be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass and so on. So there's another reference to Israel being in the midst of 
many people. So just like the tree was in the midst of the garden, and we're saying the tree is symbolic of Israel itself, God is using exactly the same language when it comes to describing the situation, if you like, of Israel. In fact, of course, if you were to put all the land masses of the planet together, uh, and somebody's kindly done that for me uh, there, you can actually see that Israel is absolutely center of, of the entire landmass. And, and so once upon a time, probably before the flood, the world was just one large landmass. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that at the time of the flood, the landmass broke up into the way that we see it uh, today. But so at the very beginning, Israel was physically, you know, center of, of, of the entire landmass. Maybe that will come back uh, one day, maybe the landmass will, will, will come back together. I don't know, but uh, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? When you put all the landmass together, it really is in the midst of uh, the, uh, the landmass of the earth. Now, here's another interesting one that really does link Israel as a nation to the fig tree itself. So in Hosea 9 verse 10, God says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree at her first time. So God actually says, I see Israel like two things. I see them like the grapes, but I also see them as the fig tree itself. So God is linking uh, clearly the fig tree to Israel. And in the third talk that we that we look at, we'll, um, which we'll do in a few weeks' time, uh, we'll see in the New Testament numerous references to Israel being like the, uh, the being symbolic of the fig tree itself. But there's one to be getting on with in Hosea nine verse ten. In one Kings chapter four verse twenty five. Uh, this is in during the reign of Solomon, so about, I don't know, a thousand BC, give or take. Um, we're told that Judah and Israel dwelt self, uh, safely, every man under his, under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba all the days of Solomon. So basically, uh, quite often, there's phrases about Israel living in security and, and in peace, and to sort of symbolize that, the fig tree is used because people didn't live under fig trees. They lived in, in, in houses, of course. But it was basically saying such was the peace during the reign of Solomon that they didn't really need walls. They didn't need barricades. They didn't have to lock the front door. They were able to live in peace. And the, and the tree that God is using there is, of course, the fig tree. So we see all these links to, uh, to Israel. So what I'm suggesting is that the tree of knowledge of good and evil, hopefully we've proven beyond all reasonable doubt, is the fig tree. Um, and we've also hopefully just now proved beyond all reasonable doubt that the fig tree is symbolic of Israel as a nation itself. And so once I've got these three things interchangeable if you like so i could link effectively i can link the tree of knowledge of good and evil to israel i can link israel to the fig tree i can link the fig tree to the tree of knowledge of good and evil do you see what i mean so these three things now become interchangeable 
And when you do that, then other verses in the Bible we're going to look at now suddenly take on a new light. Because it's only by unlocking the tree of knowledge of good and evil as being the fig tree that you can see some verses in, in quite a remarkable way. And that's what I'm going to uh, show you now. So there we've got at the top, look, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, we've got Israel on, on the right. And what we've got linking the two together is the fact that the fig tree is symbolic of Israel and the tree of knowledge of good and evil was a fig tree. So the fig tree links these two ideas together. Now have a look at this. So this is Genesis chapter two, verse 17. And God says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So God is saying, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is, I'm saying, a fig tree. Now look at this, right? Because in Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 15 and 16, talking about Israel, God, God says something almost identical. He says, I have had to punish you, Israel, because your sins are many and your guilt is great, but all who devour you will be devoured. Now, that word devour is exactly the same word in Hebrew as the word not eat or that, um, yeah, the, the word don't eat it back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. So those little numbers are put next to the word devour, 0398, is just trying to show you that it's the same Hebrew word. So God is saying you can't eat Israel. All who eat Israel will be eaten. God says thou shalt not eat of the fruit, for in the day that you eat it, you're going to die. And God is saying the same thing about Israel. Even though I've got to punish you sometimes, Israel, because you're sinful, I don't want anybody to eat you or devour you. And you might say, well, that's a strange thing because I can understand about eating a fruit, but how, does pe how do people eat uh, a nation? Well, actually, this is quite interesting, of course, because when you look at uh, Israel, and the same really, I guess, applies even in ancient times. It certainly um, uh, works out now. Um, Israel, as we know, was recreated uh, on planet Earth in 1948. And it happens to be the very, the only nation really on the planet where the whole world wants to devour it. It wants to sort of divide it in two. There isn't really a nation on earth that doesn't sort of back to some extent or a total extent the dividing of Israel, even America, that, that's a, a big supporter in many uh, cases of Israel, still, you know, has in its own objectives Israel being split. And what I've actually got there, if you notice, there's Israel in sort of a, a green colour. And this particular map shows the West Bank in, in, I'll try and move my cursor so you can see it. This bit here is the West Bank, uh, and this bit is in brown. It really is uh, still controlled by Israel, but most maps show it in a different colour because the world doesn't see the West Bank as being part of Israel. And what I've sort of done uh, here is sort of put this, you know, this is a face, by the way, if you can't work out what that black blob is. And 
and and basically this is this is somebody taking a chunk out of Israel. This is like the world and the nation of the world devouring Israel, eating away at the land that God has given them. And and that is exactly what what I think God is getting at. And and really this goes back to the Garden of Eden. God says, I don't want you to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the fig. And Adam goes and eats it. And so does Eve. In the same way with Israel, God says, I don't want you to eat it. I don't want you to devour it. And in the same way, that's exactly what is happening. In other words, the world is failing the test. Just as Adam and Eve failed the test, so the world is failing the test because all of them say Israel needs to be devoured and broken up into different parts. But you only get this link, really, that I've just shown you if you see the tree of knowledge of good and evil as the fig tree, because this is the link across to Israel. Um, here's another one for you. So in Genesis chapter three, verse three, God not only said, you shall not eat of it. He also said something else. He said, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So God says it's not just about eating it. You can't even touch it. Well, amazingly, God says exactly the same um, idea in relation to Jerusalem, uh, which, of course, is the capital of Israel. And in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 8, God says, for thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory has he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you, i.e. Jerusalem, for he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. So in other words, God's saying, I don't want you to touch Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the apple of my eye. Now, this isn't a great translation, you know, it, it, I don't honestly know why it's been translated as uh, apple. But really, that word apple is the, is, is the Hebrew for what we would call the pupil. So God is actually saying, of course, the, the pupil is that um, tiny hole that you've got in your eye. We've all got pupils, haven't we? And God says, if you touch the apple, if you touch the pupil, it should say, of my eye, it's Jerusalem is, is the pupil. So in other words, there's Jerusalem and God says, that's where it is. It's, it's in this hole in your eye. Now, the reason that God says it's like touching the pupil is that if you try right now to touch your pupil, your finger will actually not want to do it. You know, if you just try to, I'm trying to do it now. I don't know why I'm trying to do this because I know I don't want to do it. But your, all of your instincts tell you not to put your finger in your eye. And that is because covering the pupil, which is that dark hole there, it's literally just a hole. And the Hebrew word for pupil means um, a hole. Um, basically, what is covering the pupil and what is protecting the pupil is this invisible barrier here that's labeled number one. And of course, that invisible protection that goes over your eye is the cornea. And that is basically a, a, an invisible uh, protection over it. Now, what is amazing about that is the cornea is the only body tissue in the entire 
body with no blood supply. I mean, how incredible is that? There is no other body tissue in the entire body that, has, that, that, that is like the cornea. The cornea is the only body tissue with no blood supply to it. And the reason that it can't have blood supply to it is for a practical reason, of course, and that is because if there was blood in it, we would see everything through literally rose-tinted spectacles. Um, so God has designed this thing. I mean, it's incredible, really, that there's a living piece of uh, tissue with no blood in it. How does that happen? It's absolutely astounding. But here's the thing. If Jerusalem is this part here, okay, so this is, if this is Jerusalem and God says, if you try and touch Jerusalem, you're like touching the pupil of my eye. Well, what you've got to do is to go through this invisible barrier, you see. And I believe that this invisible barrier of your eye here is symbolic of God himself, who, of course, has no blood. God it has no blood in him. Blood is unique to, uh, you know, living creatures on the earth. God has no blood in him. And this invisible protection over the eye is amazingly symbolic of God himself and the way he protects his city, uh, Jerusalem. Isn't that incredible? But God says, if you try and touch Jerusalem, you're breaking through my barrier, my protection over it. And if you're going to do that, then I'm going to react. And you know, if you touch your eye, you react badly, you're going to flinch, you're going to push somebody away if they're, if, 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 you know, if they try to poke you in the eye, it's a it's a horrible thing. That is what that verse is saying. Do not touch it. And what God said in the Garden of Eden about the fig tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, is thou shalt not touch it. You see how this links amazingly uh, to, to Jerusalem. And of course, what do we see? But just as Israel is being divided or trying to be divided by the world, so remarkably, is Jerusalem as well. It's the only capital city in the world right now, which again, two different people say is their capital city. The Palestinians say the east of Jerusalem is their capital city. Um, Israel says the entirety of Jerusalem is their capital city. And so once again, we've got the world that is trying to touch Jerusalem, divide Jerusalem, and it's similar to this again. You know, we've got the same sort of idea of this devouring, of this dividing up, this touching of God's holy city. It's the same sort of idea. And once again, we're failing. We say we, the world is failing uh, that, that test. Here's another thing to consider. So in Genesis chapter three, verse six, again, it says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave unto her husband with her and he did eat. And actually, you know, they did become wise because suddenly they realized they were naked. They didn't realize that before. And they were able to start discerning between good and evil. That's what basically the serpent said would happen and in fact that bit was true they did start understanding good and evil and it it was able therefore to make them wise 
And that's exactly what happened with the nation of Israel itself. Um, Israel itself did make the people of Israel wise if they listened to God. So in Deuteronomy 4 verses 1 and 6, it says, Now Israel, hear the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land. That's obviously Israel, the Lord, the God of your ancestors is giving you. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So just as the tree of knowledge of good, of good and evil gave them wisdom, so Israel, symbolic of the same fig tree, gave them wisdom as long as they listened and heard the decrees and laws that God was about to teach them. And we know very often they failed in that, but that didn't stop the commands and decrees and the laws that God gave them um, being correct. And in fact, if they did, and sometimes they did, uh, it was showing the, the, the nations around them what true wisdom was. So there's another link between the tree of knowledge of good and evil and uh, Israel itself. Here's another one that uh, I thought was interesting. So this is, I, I was looking up about the actual tree itself in Wikipedia, um, just, to, just to find out, well, what is the fig tree? How does it work and how does it grow? Um, and you can go and look this up yourself, but this is pretty much the first few sentences out of Wikipedia talking about the fig tree. And it says that the fig tree tolerates seasonal drought and in the Middle East, and Mediterranean climates are especially suitable to it. Situated in a favorable habitat, mature specimens can grow to considerable size as large dense shade trees. Its aggressive root system helps the plant to root in the most inhospitable locations. And I'll just stop there because that's quite interesting because the way the root systems work, um, they sort of spread out massively and hunt for water. It needs lots of water, but it can, it, the way that the roots work, um, it searches out, uh, as it says there, aquifers, ravines, cracks in rocks. It just hunts around really, really well, better than almost all trees really hunting for water, which enables it to survive in inhospitable locations. Well, I think we could say, you know, Israel itself is surrounded by inhospitability, isn't it? Because you know, there's little Israel, as you can see on the map there, sort of highlighted slightly. And all those nations that are surrounding it are Islamic nations. And the vast majority of them, I know there's a few that are perhaps a bit more friendly, but the vast majority of them actually don't want Israel to exist, or they certainly give Israel a real hard time. And some of them, like Iran, want the absolute destruction. Uh, so does Syria. And if you look at the real surrounding peoples around Israel with um, the Palestinians, with Hamas, with Hezbollah, with Is Islamic Jihad, with Syria, all of those peoples are like pricking briars that we're told, trying to destroy um, Israel and remove it from existence. So it really is a tree that is uh, in a very inhospitable location and yet remarkably survives, doesn't it? 
amazingly well. I mean, Israel is, is, is one of the very, very top developed nations in the whole world. And when you look at it, it's the size of Wales, and yet it's got incredible amounts of wealth and uh, knowledge and infrastructure. And the tree itself, if you notice, it's, it says that the tree calls the hot environment in which it grows, producing fresh and pleasant habitat. And I thought that was interesting because, of course, before Israel was created in 1948, the land that we now call Israel, uh, which then was called Palestine, was just a wilderness. Nobody fought over it. Nobody wanted it. Nobody cared about it. And the land was barren. Israel is recreated and suddenly they turn it into an incredible uh, land um, and, and turn the deserts into uh, amazing plantations of all sorts of things. You know, our oranges, Jaffa oranges come from Jaffa in, in Israel. It's amazing what they've, they, they've done. So I think there's quite a lot of links to the actual setup of a fig tree as, as well when we stop and think about it. Here's another one. Um, so I'm hunting now for verses from Genesis to look for other verses that are in relation to Israel uh, using similar language. So again, we're back here again. Look, Genesis 3 verses 14 and 15. And this is God cursing the serpent who had deceived Eve and told her that it was perfectly OK to eat and devour the fig, uh, the fig tree. And God says, because you have done this, you're cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon your belly, you will go and dust you're going to eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And it will bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. And we looked at this in quite a lot of detail last time. So I'm not going to go through that again. But suffice to say, look, we've got the same sort of words coming out in Jeremiah 31 verse 27, which is talking about Israel. So Jeremiah 31 verse 27 says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of the beast. So Israel is going to be sown with two lots of seed, the seed of man and the seed of beast. Well, we know that the beast was all to do with the serpent because we're told there, look, that the, the serpent was cursed above every beast. Um, so there's obviously a, uh, a bad seed, and that must be the seed of the beast. And the seed of man in this particular passage is actually the good seed. So when you then go across to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you've got as we said last time, you've got good figs and you've got evil figs, yeah? Um, we've got the seed of the woman, which is good, and we've got the seed of the serpent, which is evil. We've got the seed of the beast, which is evil. We've got the seed of man, which is good. And so that's basically how it splits up. And effectively, when you put them all on the tree, on the tree, there were, it was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And there were some um, uh, of the figs that were good, and the sum that were evil. And if you remember, what we said was that the good figs had to be pollinated by the fig wasp. And the fig wasp, we said, was Jesus. So when you add all that together, the only way a fig could become good 
i.e. get the nutrients from the tree to grow and develop as a fruit that you could eat, is to have a fig wasp pollinate it. The fig wasp is Jesus, and therefore what we're seeing in almost symbolic code here is that the only way we individually can become a good fruit for God is to have in our lives the sacrifice of Jesus, if, if that makes sense. If we haven't, then we come on under the side of evil, we come under the side of the seed of the serpent, we come under the side of the seed of the beast. That's what we're being told. And of course, it isn't just uh, here. We read, as we talked about last time, that God even talks about figs in reference to being good and evil. I mean, this has got to be one of the biggest clues that the fig tree was the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because God says in Jeremiah 24, verse 2, one basket had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe, and the other basket had very naughty, or the same word for evil, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that word translated naughty in the authorised version is the word evil. So you've got very good figs and very evil figs, which couldn't be eaten because they were so evil. And then said the Lord unto me, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, figs, the good figs, very good, the evil, very evil, that cannot be eaten, they are so evil. So there was that link. So as I say, um, for me, um, you know, when I look at the fig tree, I'm looking at the fruit and uh, seeing the Lord Jesus Christ, but also ourselves as well. Um, I mean, if you think about it, Jesus is, we, you know, we're sort of saying, well, Jesus is the fig wasp that is um, making the fruit good, but Jesus is the fruit itself. There was no purer, more wonderful fruit in this symbolic tree uh, than Jesus. It's almost a little bit like Jesus is the shepherd and the sheep. You know, and you think, well, how can you be a shepherd and, and a sheep? That's ridiculous. But he was. And in the same way, Jesus is the fig wasp that gives his life, but he's also the fruit that was perfect for God. And the only fruit hanging on that whole tree of any value and worth was the fruit of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's through his sacrifice that we can all be made good because our sins can be forgiven. So this tree in the middle of the garden, as we've tried to sort of um, point out, is all about Israel itself. And of course, Jesus was of Israel. He was a, he was a Jew. Uh, Jesus said salvation is, is of the Jews. And what God is saying is, and this is really the, you know, the test, I, I sort of think, God says, accept what I say about Israel. I, I gave a rule in the Garden of Eden, what to do, and don't devour it. God says the test is exactly the same in the world right now. Accept what I say about Israel. Uh, do not devour her. Don't eat her. Don't destroy her. Don't chew her up. Don't split her in half. Um, the fig tree is still a test for today. The last thing I was just going to cover in just a few slides, and this is a massive uh, subject, but for those of you who might be watching this later on YouTube, obviously I'm doing it live right now, uh, but for those who might be wondering to themselves, what is the significance of Israel? I mean, why Israel? I thought I'd just very quickly show a couple of slides. Um, this is a big talk just on its own, as you can imagine, but I just thought it'd be good to uh, 
show a few slides as to the significance of Israel. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, um, Jesus is raised from the dead. He's on the Mount of Olives. He's with his disciples. And they've all come together and they asked him and said, Lord, are you going to at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? So the disciples were expecting the risen Lord Jesus Christ to immediately set up a kingdom of which they believed, of course, he was going to be the king. Are you going to restore it? Are you going to do it at this time? And Jesus said, well, it isn't for you to know the times and the seasons. So basically he says, well, yes, I'm going to do it, but now isn't the time. Okay. So, and a little bit later on in Acts of the Apostles, um, and this is after Jesus has ascended into heaven. And so he's left planet Earth. He's gone into heaven. And the Apostle Paul is, as a Christian, bound up in prison, effectively, in Rome. And uh, he says some interesting words. He says, for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. And I sort of wonder how many of us, if we were thrown into prison for our Christian views, would say, well, I'm here in prison because it's for my hope of Israel. I wonder how many Christians in the world would say it's for the hope of Israel that I'm bound uh, in chains. But that was the Apostle Paul, who was probably the greatest of the, of, of, of the Christians at that time, if we were going to put them in some sort of order, because God had commissioned the Apostle Paul to go to the uh, non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, to tell them about uh, the truth. And his, his truth was all centered on Israel. So why is Israel so, so, so important? Well, this is what I wanted to quickly show you in just a couple of slides, because I didn't really get a handle on this uh, when I grew up. And I, I reckon it, I, I was in my probably 30s before I really grasped this bit. In Genesis chapter 10, so going all the way back to Genesis, you're, you're around about 2000 years before Christ um, at this point in time. And you read about a kingdom that was on the earth. In fact, it was the very first kingdom that ever existed, uh, according to the scriptures. And it wasn't a good kingdom. It was uh, a kingdom that was run by a chap called Nimrod. And his kingdom was called Babel, and it was in the land of Shinar. And on that map uh, that you can see there, uh, you've basically got where Babel was. It wasn't just, it was a city, but it actually covered quite a large territory in terms of its influence. And that's why it was called a kingdom, because it was, uh, it was not just one very localized place. It actually covered quite a large territory. And if I just put it onto the map so you can see, hopefully you can just about see there the na modern nations on the earth. So you can see there, it sort of covers modern day, it was in modern day Iraq. Anyway, um, these people that lived in Babel uh, with Nimrod ruling over them decided to build this city and a tower. And God was not happy with this uh, situation uh, because it was all about, and you can read about it in Genesis chapter 11, it was all about them replacing God's thinking and God's ways and God's religion with man's thinking and man's ways and a made-up man's religion. Um, and it says, uh, God says, behold, uh, the people are one. They have all got one language. Uh, nothing is going to be restrained from them, which they've imagined to do. 
let go to, let us go down and there confound their language. And that's what God did. And that's where we get all the, the languages of the world sprang from this one place. The word Babel in Hebrew means confusion and Nimrod himself, the ruler of this place for some time, his actual name in Hebrew means rebellion. And the great tower that they were building was all to do with false worship, not the worship of God, but false worship. In fact, what they did was worship uh, Nimrod. At the very same time that all this is going on, there was somebody else. And this somebody else was called Abraham. And Abraham lived in the territory of the kingdom of Babel. He lived in Ur of the Chaldees. He's on the, exactly the same map, look. And God picked out Abraham and said to him, get out of your country, the king, you know, the kingdom of Babel, basically, and from your kindred or your family and from your father's house, because I'm going to take you to a land and I'm going to show you where it is. And I'm going to make of you a great nation, a kingdom. And I'm going to bless you and make your name great. And you're going to be a blessing. Now, God didn't pick Abraham out because, you know, he, he sort of looked like somebody that God wanted to work with. He got a nice long white beard and he looked like a prophet. God picked Abraham, Abraham out because he was faithful. In fact, he was probably the only faithful person, a bit like with Noah, where God saw Noah and picked him out out of all the people on the earth and said, you're going to build me an ark. God picked out Abraham for the same reasons. Abraham was faithful. In fact, Abraham's own father, Terah, was not faithful. He actually, we're told in Joshua, uh, worshipped idols. And that's why God said, you're going to have to leave it all behind Abraham. So here is Abraham down there in Ur of the Chaldees. And God led him. He didn't know where he was going. And God led him out of this uh, area of Babel and this false kingdom that had been set up. And he took him out as an individual man. Yes, he had got servants and wives and a bit of an entourage that went with him. But Abraham was the one that God called out. Now, the point is this. Babel was the beginning of the kingdom of men. It was the it was the home, if you like, the beginning of all the opposition to God, setting itself upon earth as a as, as a kingdom that would uh, push back against God and want nothing to do with God and have their own religious uh, thinking. But Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. And Israel was the beginning of the kingdom of God and is the, still the beginning of the kingdom of God. In fact, Israel is the antidote to Babel. That's what exactly what it is. It's the antidote to Babel. And therefore, Israel became center of the whole plan and purpose of God. And when Jesus comes back, Israel will be the central nation of the entire planet, out of which will emanate the teachings of God. What is really interesting is that Babel means confusion. And if you look at the name Israel in Strong's Concordance, it actually means God prevails. Or you might say God succeeds. Or you might say in modern terms, God wins. In other words, this confusion that was set up at the time of Babel, which has continued to this day. The whole world really has become a great big kingdom of men. 
is going to be replaced by Israel. And Israel means God wins. And God is going to win. He is going to replace all the wicked kingdoms on this earth. And so when they said, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples, when Jesus was risen from the dead, hoped and prayed it was going to happen there and then. Good news for us, it didn't happen there and then, otherwise we wouldn't be here now. It needed time to go by to allow more and more people to be able to come to the knowledge of these things. Uh, but Jesus is going to return to set up the kingdom. And in that same chapter, it says that while they were watching, Jesus was taken up from them and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men that were angels stood by them in white apparel. And they said, you men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? Uh, this same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, will come, will so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. So they said he's going to come back. He is going to come back. Uh, just two more slides to go. We're told in an incredible prophecy in Daniel chapter two, all about the return of Jesus and how the kingdom of God is going to replace all kingdoms on this earth. And it says in that verse that you can see on the screen, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it will break in pieces and consume all the kingdoms and it will stand forever. So when Jesus comes back and that little rock falling out the sky is symbolic of Jesus coming back to this earth, and he grinds to powder all the nations on this earth, whether it be the United States of America or whether it be the United Kingdom or whether it be Russia or Iran or Australia. The whole lot will end up coming under the control of one king, and that is the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, ruling from Jerusalem and ruling from Israel. And this is my very poor attempt at trying to see what it might look like in the future with some pretty terrible graphics there but it says that Jerusalem is going to be raised up it says that all nations are going to flow unto it when Jesus comes back and that God's teaching will go forth to all people in fact the Bible says it much better than me um, in Isaiah chapter 2 verse 2 it says in the last days the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all the most important place on earth it will be raised above the other hills and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths for the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. That's Jerusalem. His word will go out from Jerusalem. The Lord will mediate between nations and will settle international disputes they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation, nor train for war anymore. And surely in the light of what we see at the moment with Ukraine and Russia, you know, uh, surely this is an incredible and wonderful picture uh, that is coming. But it's an incredible and wonderful picture that all emanates from the fig tree, which is surely a sign for all time. And next time, We'll have a look and see all the passages in the New Testament that reference the fig tree and show remarkably 
how it even predicts the future and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening.